Uh, I join with OJ in saying uh, Happy Mother's Day. It's just so fun during the greeting time, everybody. Happy Mother's Day. It was great. Um, and so Happy Mother's Day to you all. I love coming to Lake Mary, and I've really enjoyed uh, preparing for uh, this message this morning. And, and one of the things that I did is, I, I, knowing what was in the passage, uh, I decided to spend a little time, just for fun, to study the science behind what goes into changing our minds, changing our thinking. And apparently, changing our thinking, even in the what seems to be insignificant things, it doesn't come easily to us. And you can imagine then on the bigger things, the things like religion, the things like politics, our deeper values, our deeper belief systems, that once these initial views and opinions are formed, they don't, we don't give them up easily. Change does not come very simply to us. And what was fascinating in my study is that uh, places like Harvard and Stanford have studies out now that are showing that even when confronted with indisputable facts, that the thing we think is right is actually wrong. And there's indisputable facts that show this that we're wrong. People still resist change. Fascinating. I, I think some of it's just kind of ingrained. Maybe part of it's our pride that we don't want to be wrong. Uh, but it can start at a really, really early age. And perhaps some of you have seen this video that I think illustrates the point well. Sometimes we'd rather eat that nasty old onion than to admit it's an apple. <laughs> I want you to keep this in mind. I want you to think about this as we work through a conversation that Jesus had with a prominent leader in Jerusalem uh, that was a contemporary of Jesus. His name is Nicodemus. And we will see in this story that for Nicodemus to become a follower of Jesus, um, he's going to have to admit that everything that he's studied up until this point, everything that he's accomplished based on that is an error. It's wrong. He has to face the daunting realization that he's climbed the ladder of success. He's climbed the ladder of accomplishment. He's arrived at this place of prestige only to find that the ladder's leaning up against the wrong wall. And so he thinks he's got an apple but Jesus needs to show him that it's really only an onion, and he's got the real thing, and he wants to give it to him. And so we're going to be studying John chapter 3. If you would open your Bibles to John 3 or pull out your app, or we've provided this for you in our bulletin. And I'd like you to just kind of keep that with you and in front of you because we're going to read a little bit, and I'm going to explain kind of what that section, and we're going to take this one section at a time, so you might want to keep that readily available uh, throughout the talk this morning. Let's start in verse 1. 
Now, there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. Okay, let's stop there. This is our introduction um, into the person Nicodemus. Um, there's some important info here uh, about who he is and what he's about. It says that he's a Pharisee, and uh, Pharisees were a group of religious leaders that actually were formed in the intertestament period between the uh, writing of the Old Testament, the last book of Malachi, and then 450 years later, the writing of Matthew. And so the Pharisees were a group of religious leaders that came into being during that time period. They were kind of the blue-collar group, um, and they were known to be the ones that prided themselves on fastidiously just adhering to every little nuance of the 613 laws of the Old Testament. And in addition to that, the Jews recorded traditions of practices based on the laws in this book called Mishnah, and they prided themselves on keeping those as well. So every day, they woke up thinking that if I do all this stuff, if I'm super religious, God will accept me. Unfortunately, this led to the ugly sin of spiritual pride. They thought themselves, because they were so religious, that they were above everybody else. They were better than the common person. So the religion that they had really led them away from the people and actually to be in judgment of the people. We see that not only was Nicodemus a Pharisee, a, a teacher, he was also a member of the Sanhedrin, the council. And this is the ruling body for the nation of Israel. Um, and it was a group of 71 prominent leaders and you would spend a lifetime hoping to get this appointment. I mean, this was a really, really big deal. And so Nicodemus was one of those 71 members of the ruling council. And then on top of all that, because of all of his accomplishments, he was a really wealthy man. So he had an accomplished career, a prominent position. He was extremely wealthy. He had it all. And, uh, and the best way to think about him is he would have been known, he would have been a celebrity. Think rock star. Think rock star in the Jewish culture, okay? And so this is who we're talking about. And on this night, this highly sought-after teacher, he decides he has some questions. You see, all of Jerusalem had been abuzz. All of Jerusalem was just in chaos. There's conversations around the dinner table going on all the time because this new prophet was on the scene, this person by the name of Jesus. And that people had seen nothing like this before in their lifetime or heard about it through tradition. He was one who spoke with authority. He didn't hold himself above the people. He walked and lived among them. He was able to relate to them, to touch them, to have dinner with them. And oh my goodness, the miracles. He would heal the sick. He would open the eyes of the blind. He would cast out demons. He raised the dead. And then when he spoke, nature itself obeyed his word. And so the town was just going crazy. Who is this guy? They had questions. And to his credit, Nicodemus, he brought his questions directly to Jesus. Verse 2. He came to Jesus at night and he said, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who has come from God, so no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. So he comes at night, and so with all due respect to Nickelodeon Channel, here we have our first episode of Nick at Night. 
Oh, that's bad. All right. We'll, uh, we'll not go there anymore. I promise. I'll stick to preaching. All right. All right. So, you know, some people think what was going on here is that he did this in secret. He didn't want to be discovered. Maybe that's happening. Also, it was very uh, common in Jewish culture that these types of dialogues would be taken uh, to the evening or into the night because then they could be undistracted and really go deep together. We don't know all the reasons why he did this, but the key is, for whatever reason, he came. He brought his questions to Jesus. And he starts out and says, Rabbi. Really interesting. He starts with a term of respect. He's saying, I'm a teacher, and I'm going to call you teacher. I'm going, to, I'm going to, in his mind, he was thinking, elevate you to the same status that I have, even though you're not credentialed and I am. But he shows respect to Jesus. And he says to him, no one can perform the signs you are doing unless God is with him. And so he points to something that was very perplexing to Nicodemus. You see, in Jewish culture, and Nicodemus would know this better than anybody, when God wanted to verify that this person is speaking on my behalf, that this person is indeed a prophet, he would allow that prophet to do miracles as God's stamp of approval and validation that this is indeed from God. And this was hard for Nicodemus. Nicodemus never did miracles. The buddies on the Sanhedrin, those 70 other people, they never did miracles. And Jesus was doing them routinely. And so this was perplexing to him. See, Nicodemus is the most educated man in all of Jerusalem knew that miracles trump PhDs. And so he had questions. Verse three, here's Jesus's response. Very, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. What? Rabbi, I know you're from God. No one can see the kingdom of God. Do you feel the abruptness there? It has nothing to do with the intro that Nicodemus said. He just kind of bypasses him. Ever been in a conversation like that where you kind of, hey, how you doing? You're doing the niceties of kind of the introduction. It blows right past the introduction and dives right into the issue. Um, I have three daughters, and two of them are now married. And when the young man, uh, both of my sons-in-laws, uh, when they came and turned to me, both of them formally asked me for my daughter's hand in marriage. It was pretty cool. And, uh, and I could tell they were really nervous. And eventually, after all the niceties, they kind of got down. And, well, Mr. Kern, can I have your permission to marry your daughter? And, and, and I didn't go quite this abrupt, but I got right to the heart. And I said, oh, that's great. I said, yeah, we should talk about some things. I have a couple of questions. But I have one main question uh, that I'd like you to answer. And here it is. Tell me how God has led you. And tell me why you think it's God's will to marry my daughter. Isn't that a great question? <laughs> tell me how God has led you. Somebody wanted me to repeat it <laughs> in between the services here. And tell me how God has led you and why you think it's God's will to marry my daughter. And I just sit back and I listen. And I, I, we dive right in. So dads, that's a freebie. You can use that one. Make these boys squirm. They're going after your daughter, right? All right. So anyway, we got right into the issue. Jesus does that here. It may seem abrupt. It may seem borderline rude. But actually, it's the most important and loving thing that Jesus could do in this conversation. You see, he knows Nicodemus's mind. He knows his questions. He knows his struggles. He knows exactly where he's gone wrong in his understanding of God and where he's gone wrong in his understanding on how to obtain salvation. So he goes right to the issue. You see, Nicodemus is a legalist. He teaches 
and he thinks that what makes him acceptable to God is first and foremost, he was born a Jew. It's his birthright. That's what he believes. And he believes because he so meticulously keeps the laws of God that he's now presenting himself as acceptable to God. God must accept him because he keeps all the laws. He's doing everything that he knows humanly possible to make it possible that God would accept him. Outwardly, as we've seen, this leads to arrogance and thinking that he's better than everybody else, but inwardly, here's what happens. Whenever we measure ourselves by our ability to be perfect, whenever our self-worth is determined by our need to be flawless, whenever we believe that we're acceptable only because of our accomplishments, we can't help but be insecure and exhausted. And so in the back of Nicodemus' mind, he must be asking the question, am I doing enough? And Jesus knows these are his questions. And so he goes right to the issue. What do I have to do for God to accept me? In our culture, I've found that people rarely feel that they have to attain this level of perfection. What I encounter more often in my conversations is something similar uh, to this. The popular thought today says, you know, I know God knows that I'm not perfect. And, but I do believe God knows that I'm trying. I'm giving it my best. And he's a good God. So he's going to overlook the bad things knowing the intention of my heart. And he's going to give me my participation trophy at the end. All right? He's, he's going to acknowledge that. I've actually had somebody kind of tell me that they see it as the scales that we see in justice and that on one side, the bad things I do kind of make the scales go this way, but God sees the good things and the good intentions of my heart. And in the end, I believe the scales are going to tip in my favor. God's going to acknowledge that and he's going to let me in. And so this is what many, many people believe. There's a problem if you look deeper at this, this has got to be a horribly scary place to be. How good is good enough? What do I have to do to make God happy with me? How much is there? And what should I stop doing? And what's the ratio of goodness to badness? And, and, and how much do I owe God? What does it take to offset all my mistakes? And question after question, someone who believes this can never be secure. They can never have peace or confidence in their heart that they've got it fully covered. It makes you exhausted. And if you think about it long enough, probably a nervous wreck. And so like Jesus did with Nicodemus, he wants to do for you and for me as well. He wants us to start and begin and tell us that getting into the kingdom is impossible for us in our own effort. We can't do it. It's just as impossible if I took you to the shores of North Carolina and said, jump in the Atlantic Ocean and start swimming and swimming and swimming until you reach the Horn of Africa. You can't do it. You don't have the capability. Spiritually, we can't get there in our own efforts. It's impossible. Jesus, fortunately, has a better way. He says, stop striving and let me do for you what you cannot do for yourself. You need to be anothen. You need to be born from above. Or as it's translated here in Nicodemus, you need to be born again. You need to be born a second time. What he needed is what we all need. It's something impossible for us to do, but it's something God is willing and able to do. We need to be born again. We need to be form born from above. We need to be born by God. There's a fancy name for this theologically. This is called the doctrine of regeneration. 
And here's how Paul described it, this work of the Holy Spirit making us alive, making us new creations, making us new creatures in Christ. Titus 3, verses 4 and 5. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. Do you see that? This is what it means to be born again. God doesn't fix the old. He gives you something brand new. Titus 3, verses 4 and 5. Now listen to Nicodemus' response in verse 4. How can someone be born when they're old, Nicodemus asks. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born again. Now, some people think he's being sarcastic and maybe a little bit slow on the uptake, but what he's actually doing is very common in Jewish theological debate. He is showing Jesus that he is tracking with the impossibility of it all. For rabbis, you see, this was their world. They lived in the world of analogy, the world of illustrations, of parables, of word pictures, of parallels, and they debated like this constantly. And this man is brilliant. He's not slow up on, on the uptake. This is his life in constant conversation about theological discussion and dialogue. What he's saying is, I understand, but I'm not sure I can buy into your point fully. You see, he jumps into the third person in the, in the language here, and in the discussion he says, how can a man be born when he's old? Okay, Jesus, I'll use your analogy. He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb, can he? And so he's tracking, but he's struggling. You see, change is hard. And it's particularly difficult for him because perhaps in this moment he senses, this is going to cost me. If Jesus is right, my goodness, I'm a teacher of the law. I'm on the ruling council. I'm a wealthy guy. And, and all of it's predicated on what I think right now. Or perhaps he's just thinking at a more basic level. And he hated the idea that he might have to admit that he's been wrong all along that the ladder that he's been climbing is on the, the wrong wall, and it's got him shocked, and it's got him shaken in this conversation. So Jesus continues, and he gives him three hints, three riddles, if you will, points that were inviting Nicodemus to think with him. And this was also very com um, common in the rabbinic tradition of dialogue and debate. And so the first hint is found in verse 5. Jesus answered, Truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. So here's the first hint. This is the work of God, not your own strength. And he tells him straight up. He's saying, Nicodemus, you're in no condition to get to heaven by yourself. All right, you are flesh and all you can produce is more flesh. What you need is God to give you new life. Not, I'm not here to fix the old. That one's beyond repair. Right? I'm here to give you a new life, a new heart. Now, there's different views about what Jesus meant when he said, uh, you must be born of water and spirit. To understand this, you need to remember who Jesus is talking to. So uh, some of you I know are interested in getting a, a perspective on this. So let me share with you the three different perspectives that exist on this. Um, the first one is that this is a, uh, a reference to physical birth, 
because there's amniotic fluid that's associated with the birthing process, and, and so he's saying you need to be born physically, then you need to be born spiritually. Problem with that, there's nothing in Jewish literature that would say that they would refer to being born in this way. Um, another common idea is that it's referring to baptism. Uh, again, though, who is Jesus talking to? Nicodemus. Christian baptism didn't exist yet. And so why would he bring up a reference to something that Nicodemus wouldn't understand? What most theologians agree is what Jesus is referring to is something that Nicodemus would have got instantly because he's an expert in the Old Testament law. And this is clearly a reference to Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 24 to 27, where it says, God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness, from all your idols. And moreover, I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit within you. And so he's saying, Nicodemus, this is already written. This is already foretold that God is going to create new, a new heart in you by his spirit. And so this is what uh, being born of the water and spirit means. It's the new creation, the regenerating work of God that makes us new creatures in Christ. The second hint is found in the seventh verse. And, and the passages are in the verses that follow. Verse 7 you should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. Verse 9, how can this be, Nicodemus asks. Jesus responds, you are Israel's teacher, and you do not understand these things? Truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify of what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who's come from heaven, the son of man. So Jesus gives his second hint here, wind. He's saying the work of God's spirit is like the wind. You can't see it but you could sure feel it. You can't control it, but you know it's real. Anybody remember Hurricane Charlie 2004? Was anybody here for that one? Yeah, Charlie ran off with a bunch of shingles off my roof and just poured water somehow into our master bedroom floor and it was just a mess. Right, anybody hear Hurricane Irma last year? She ran off with most of the soffit on my house on the one side of the house, all right? I didn't see the wind, but man, you could sure see its effects. You could sure see the power of the wind, and you surely know that it's real. What he's saying is, Nicodemus, nothing is impossible with God. The Spirit can and will indeed give you new life, and you can't see him, but you certainly will feel his effects. And he'll give you a life that's free from this constant striving, free from your self-effort, free from this terrifying prison that you're in, the thinking that you can do enough to earn my favor. Change is hard. Do you see it? How can this be, is his response in verse 9. He's making the classic mistake that he's only thinking in the physical realm. And Jesus is trying to help him to prod him to see beyond the physical to the spiritual realm of God. And so to bolster his argument, he pulls out his credentials and he basically says, uh, Nicodemus, I know what I'm talking about. I've been there, I'm from there. All right, anybody, that's pretty, that's like the ultimate card, right? There's comedian Brian Regan and he has a bit where he says, I would have loved to have been one of the 12 people that walked on the moon. 
Um, he said, that would be great. And he goes, and the reason that I want this is that have you ever been in those social gatherings where you run into what he calls the me monster? The person where you're in the conversation and it's just me, 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 and goes on and on and on. And yeah, I'm talking about all the global work enterprises that I've got going and all the vacations that I've been on and all the possessions that I have and they go on and on and on. He says, but eventually they get around to maybe asking the question, they say, hey, Neil, Neil Armstrong, you, you done anything interesting before? Well, yeah, you know, I walked on the moon once and, uh, and I was cruising in my moon rover going through the sea of tranquility and we were kind of going kind of fast and I realized, hey, wait a minute, uh, I'm not gonna get in trouble, I'm the only one here. But you know, hey, that, that was pretty cool. That would be really great. He pulls out that trump card, right? He pulls out that, hey, I know what I'm talking about. This is what Jesus is doing. He's saying, Nicodemus, your authority is all your study. My authority, I'm from heaven, right? You need to listen to what I'm saying. And he gives him a third hint as well, verse 14. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Now, again, Nicodemus is an expert in the Old Testament, and so Jesus makes this reference. To us, seems like a weird, very obscure thing. A snake lifted up, what's he talking about? He's talking about Numbers chapter 21, and Nicodemus would know this well. All right, and is, he's, what he's doing here is he's speaking Nicodemus's language. And he's, I just love this about Jesus. He knows your question, and he's an expert at answering your question in a way that you'll get. And so while this is weird for us, it's very, very perfect for Nicodemus. And here's what happened in Numbers 21. The nation of Israel was wandering around in the desert, and they were just once again grumbling and complaining about God, their living conditions, their food, having to eat manna, and they just, uh. And so God, as a form of discipline, sent venomous snakes in among them, and it was biting the people, and people were dying. And the people then humbled themselves, and they cried out to God and said, what must we do? And so God said to Moses, the leader, he said, make a bronze statue of a serpent, put it on a pole, get in a prominent place, and lift up that pole. And when the people look to the pole, I'll see that as an act of contrition, an act of them humbling themselves, an act of faith, and I'll heal them. And so that's what he did. And so Jesus is saying, just as Moses lifted up the pole in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that all who look upon him, all who believe in him, will have eternal life. What a powerful, powerful imagery for Nicodemus. Because we know from the story that has continued this is exactly what he needed. You see, it's the thing he needed to go past his wrong beliefs and to humble himself to ultimately become a follower of Jesus. And I'm just so amazed to see God and how he works with each one of us individually and specifically. And so Nicodemus was very certainly there in and around the event of the crucifixion. And I'm sure this conversation likely came back to his mind in that moment. So whatever happened to this guy? Well, he's brought up two more times in scripture. One is in John chapter seven. Two years later, the Sanhedrin, the ruling council, they're really fed up with Jesus and they're trying to get him killed. And Nicodemus in that meeting actually stands up for Jesus and he speaks up for him. And boy, is he ridiculed. He's getting a taste of what's to come. These people just tore him a new one and it wasn't pretty. 
And then we see him again in chapter 19. Jesus, in this particular passage, had just died on the cross. And in verse 38 of John 19, it says, After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. Pilate granted permission, so he came and took his body away. Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, also came, bringing with him a mixture of myrrh and aloes, 75 pounds in all. Now, myrrh and aloes was the resin that they would use in their burial customs, and it had a fragrance to it and a capacity to kind of mute the smell of the decaying flesh. So this is how they would bury And again, he brought 75 pounds, which shows that he was a very wealthy individual, and it was his way of honoring Jesus, very honorable and bold act that he did. He joins his companion, Joseph of Arimathea, and this guy was a secret believer. He wasn't willing yet to confess it openly. Um, And then now he and Nicodemus are there to honor Jesus in his death. And can you picture this? There Nicodemus is holding the body of Jesus in his arms, the one that he had spoken with three years earlier. And he lays each layer of wrap with the aloes and the myrrhs in between each layer. He's tenderly caring for this body of Jesus, and they honor him by laying him in the rich man's tomb that no one had been laid in before. The Bible doesn't tell us any more than that. So what happened to him? Well, while the Bible doesn't tell us, fortunately, church tradition does. And here's what we find out about Nicodemus. The good news is God came down and God gave him a new heart. God gave him new life. God washed him. God regenerated him. He became a follower of Jesus. Tradition says that he was the only person that stood up for Jesus at the trial before Pontius Pilate. Tradition says that he was baptized by uh, John and by Peter. Tradition also says that he confessed the Lord so boldly that it cost him his office. He was deprived of his position. He was deprived of his teaching. He was deprived of all of his possessions and his great wealth. And he was cast out of the city to live outside the walls of Jerusalem in abject poverty while his family was living inside. There's a powerful little traditional story that says his daughter was so poor that she had gotten to the shameful point of digging through dung to find little seeds that she could have sustenance from. And a rabbi came by and he saw her and he felt compassion for her and he says, who are you? And she said, I'm the daughter of Nicodemus. And he asked, whatever happened to your father? And she said, he became a follower of Jesus and he was banished. And the rabbi refused to help her. He just moved on. Sounds like a tragic and sad ending, doesn't it? But Nicodemus, if he were here today, he would tell us it was worth it. With everything that it cost him, he would join with Jim Elliott and tell us, you're no fool to give what you cannot keep, to gain what you cannot lose. You see, he put his trust in Jesus. He said, I'm gonna stop striving And I'm going to say, Jesus, I accept your free gift for me and allow you to do for me what I could never do for myself. And by your spirit, please honor your promise and give me new life. And that's exactly what Jesus will do for any and all who put their faith in him. By believing in Jesus, 
Nicodemus traded in his nasty old onion and he allowed Jesus to give him an apple. And he learned the truth that's so beautifully stated as John summarizes this passage in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever should believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Let's pray. Father, we are humbled as we see you do your work and you are just so brilliant, tender, and perfect in how you speak to the questions of our heart. Lord, we thank you for the story that shows, Lord, that you knew exactly how to speak to Nicodemus to bring him to a point of coming to the end of himself that he might accept the free gift that you offered him. Lord, I, I just pray for those that are here that perhaps haven't crossed that line of faith today, that they would see from this story that it's simply saying, I'm gonna stop striving and I will accept and put my faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your shed blood for us and taking our place at Calvary. And Lord, I pray that you give them the heart to make that choice even right now. For those of us that are following, Lord, help us to just learn from this story that what we need is to not walk in our own power, that even as Christians, Lord, we can fall into the trap of thinking that somehow my efforts make us acceptable to you. That's never the case. It's simply and only because of Jesus. Help us like Nicodemus to bring our questions to you, to lay them at your feet, and trust that you by your spirit will speak uniquely, individually, and specifically to that which we need to hear from you. And so I commend each person here to you and to the word of your grace, which is able to build them up. I pray this in Christ's name, amen.